difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. You believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to the Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias here with Tasha Robinson and Genevieve Kosky. Keith Phipps, who's normally here, is on vacation. He'll be back for our next installment. Here on the Next Picture Show, we believe that no film exists in a vacuum and that all culture is more interesting in context. So every other week, we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current release. This week, something big is happening. We've seen the signs. We have the coordinates. Tasha, I think this episode is going to be out of this world. Yes, they thought we were crazy, but after five months of diligent podcasting, the next picture show finally makes contact. Our pairing this week is Steven Spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third Kind and Jeff Nichols' Midnight Special, two movies about humans who quest for the otherworldly. Both follow characters who have absolute faith in the outlandish prospect of an alien rendezvous, and that faith is miraculously rewarded in the end. In Close Encounters, Richard Dreyfuss stars as an electrician from Indiana who gets so close to a UFO that it burns half his face. It turns out that many people from around the world, including scientists and government agents, have experienced strange occurrences and visions too. All roads lead to Devil's Tower in Wyoming, but the question is whether this close encounter will be a friendly one. The same madness underscores Midnight Special, which also sends various groups of people toward the same set of coordinates. The only evidence we have of an alien presence is an eight-year-old boy with special powers, but that's enough to attract the interest of a religious cult and government agents and inspire his parents to go on the run to protect him. Midnight Special clearly owes a debt to Close Encounters, but while the two films work toward a similar ending, they don't necessarily work toward the same ends. No, they don't. The connections between these two movies are fascinating because they say so much about the director's agendas and the times in which they are made. On today's show, we'll dig into the wonders and optimism of Close Encounters. Then, on the second half, we'll contrast it with a darker vision of Midnight Special. Tasha, Genevieve, just close your eyes and hold your breath, and everything will turn real pretty. The only thing these phrases have in common are five, six... I hope somebody's taking all this down. What are we saying to each other? It seems they're trying to teach us a basic tonal vocabulary. It's the first day of school, fellas. Close Encounters of the Third Kind is premised on a radical optimism. What if an alien invasion could be a positive experience? As consumers of science fiction, we've been taught to expect otherwise, that surely, if an alien race were sophisticated enough to find the planet Earth, the best we could expect is to be probed mercilessly like the crude, inferior species that we are. But mostly, we can expect to be destroyed. Drawn from Spielberg's memories and dreams as a stargazing kid, and influenced by the song When You Wish Upon a Star, Close Encounters of the Third Kind seems like an extension of and a rebuke to the advances made by Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey nearly a decade earlier. Kubrick's film awed audiences with the possibilities of outer space and celestial encounters, but took a pessimistic view of where those adventures might lead. There are sequences in Close Encounters that mirror the quiet marvels of 2001, but Spielberg, a populist to the core, takes a sunnier view of technology and the potential for interstellar communication. For him, the unknowns of space promise a chance to transcend our limitations, not smack against them like a brick wall. There's a pleasing order to the universe in Close Encounters, even though Spielberg takes his time making sense of it. There's no guarantee that humans will benefit at all from making contact. When a little boy from a farm in Muncie, Indiana gets sucked up into an alien ship, there's no reason to expect a good outcome. There's also a frightening pathology to Richard Dreyfuss terrorizing his family and completely dismantling his home out of a strange, hostile compulsion. Then there's the government itself, which is going to great lengths to keep American citizens from finding out about these extraordinary happenings in their backyard. When Spielberg finally brings humans and aliens together at Devil's Tower, he faces the difficult task of dramatizing a harmonious affair. Suddenly, this movie that seemed to be about otherworldly threats and government secrets becomes a movie about two vastly different cultures finding some way to communicate. If two alien races can find common ground, Spielberg suggests, then surely human beings can settle their differences too. So, you know, there's a lot to talk over here, uh, Tasha and Genevieve, but let's start with a core question. 
does Close Encounters of the Third Kind still have the power to awe you, Tasha Robinson, and why? You know, this may be a silly way of looking at it, but if I had stopped, I hadn't seen this since the 80s, um, and rewatching it, I <laughs> I found that a lot, a lot of it just feels really problematic to me from like a character standpoint and sometimes from a storytelling standpoint. And if I had stopped watching at the point where they get to the top of Devil's Tower and see the government uh, installation, I would have said, no, this is not a particularly awesome movie. And <laughs> then pretty much everything after that. Uh, our parent podcast film spotting uh, often says uh, it got dusty in the theater, <laughs> um, which, I, you know, I'm going to own it. I, I teared up. And I teared up because not because of dust, but because of emotions. That moment when the mothership uh, slowly like edges its way over the top of Devil's Tower is just it's it's still breathtaking. It's still awe inspiring. And part of that in the back of my head is knowing that this was all done with practical effects and, mm-hmm. and seeing like the detail of what they built um, to create this effect. But part of it is just the otherworldliness of it all. And I, I think that one of the things Close Encounters does is steep you so deeply in various aspects of like mundane day-to-day life that once you're really taken out of it, once you really see the vastness of what humanity is up against, it becomes a kind of a look at the ineffable. And because Spielberg leaves so much open uh, to wonder about what that ineffable is and what it means, it leaves you feeling like you've been touched in a religious way because a lot of the questions are very religious. Okay, now why are we here? What does this mean? Like, what does this power want with us? Uh, While feeling very dwarfed by it. Yeah, it's still a pretty awe-inspiring movie. I think just so much of that too is in the sound and those notes and music just has such a primal power and this movie obviously taps into that power in a very memorable way. We were all all doing the notes uh, Mm -hmm. as we were setting up for this podcast. But yeah, Tasha, I I don't want to call it problematic, but I I did find myself a lot more unsettled on this viewing than than I remember ever being before. And again, it's been probably close to 20 years, let's say 15 years since I've seen this movie. So it's my first time seeing it as an adult and like Roy losing his mind and deciding to leave his family and hopping on a spaceship to God knows what, like that all struck me as a lot more kind of terrifying this time around than I ever remembered it being. And I'm certainly not the first person to make that observation but just as far as my personal reaction goes i felt myself getting a lot more hung up on that aspect of it than i remember you know feeling when i was 15 or whenever i saw this movie yeah it occurs to me now that you that you talk about it that that and you talked about the religious aspects of it and you talked about the pathology i suppose of the roy character of how much maybe that that more most recent uh, that Aronofsky take on Noah's Ark seems yeah. to seems hmm. to take that same idea of just of this uh, of this devoted family man who who comes up, who is given this mission that just transcends absolutely everything. Uh, I actually uh, just rewatched Interstellar, and that has uh, aspects of that too. Jeff Nichols' uh, Take Shelter came to mind a lot yeah. watching this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and we'll get to it with Midnight Special as well, which is which is really uh, you know again about cases where you know this mission that seems impossible, improbable, other otherworldly transcends the things that you have and consider important. Yeah, I mean, it was it is fascinating the amount of guess of of real like emotional violence that Roy exerts over his family. I mean, his his wife she flees the house. Yeah. It is I mean, once once he you know once he gets past the you know, mashed potatoes is one thing, but like once he is taking shoveling uh, pull, dirt into the window, right, and throwing and breaking windows and, and wrecking uh, the, the the poor neighbor's duck farm. <laughs> <laughs> he needed the chicken wire. I don't know. Well, I, clearly, it's duck wire. That's just one level of his delusion. Something else that also struck me this time is that I, I feel like kind of what I've always heard, like the line on this movie is kind of what you were saying in the keynote that this interaction between, you know, humans and this alien species is, you know, sort of benevolent or, or you know, it's about communication. But I don't know that I buy that these aliens are necessarily benevolent. Like they did cause several people to lose their minds and they did abduct 
these pilots for their entire lives. Like they, they come back and they're still the same age as when they left, but they've lost their entire lives on Earth. And like, that's really unsettling. And maybe just they've the- gone all like they've gone all Steve Rogers. Yeah, like they're they're going to be dumped in the middle of Times Square and freak out. <laughs> right. It's like they give Barry back. But what about all those those soldiers? And also that spindly adult alien really don't like that guy at okay, all. We're going to have to talk about adult. <laughs> OK, first of all, you don't like him because he reminds you of a spider. Yes. Let's well, just get that yes, out. I, I'm, I'm willing to admit that <laughs> you are. You're extremely. But also, like, you can't even come out of the ship, dude. Come on. Well, OK. I mean, we can we can talk about whether it's that the adult alien, because if so, like he's sending a it's it feels like he's sending a kindergarten class yeah. out to like pick the next teacher. It, it, we're talking about aliens here. For all we know, that was the kid. And it was like, all right, you can have a peek at Earth. But then the adults got to go do some serious Richard Dreyfus selecting. Well, let us say, though, let us concede that these aliens really probably do have the power to do a lot of harm. Yeah. To, a lot more harm than they do. And, and, and we could maybe say that... that just casing the joint that before the ab- they blow that, it up. That these, ab- that these abductions that have, that have taken place, maybe there's a... Maybe a gentle probing rather than a rather than a truly <laughs> a loving probing. Yeah, something a little bit well, nothing, 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 nothing untoward, but but uh, nothing that'll lose us our clean rating on iTunes. Th- no, nothing like that. But there is, but but when you get to the the core scene of the human species of the alien species communicating, that strikes me as a is a peaceful exchange. No, or no. I don't know if peaceful is necessarily the word. I mean, it's quite loud, but. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I mean, it's 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 pro it's, it's probing in its own way. It's investigative. It's like it's like trying to determine on what level this inferior species is capable of communicating with mm-hmm. us. And like for all, like yeah, they do communicate, but there's not necessarily information exchanged there. You know, and, and I, I'm not saying that like you know, Close Encounters of the Third Kind too. you know, where they come back and blow up Earth. I'm not saying like that's what this is suggesting. I'm just saying there was a a vibe I felt this this time around. Like this this could go bad. It it obviously doesn't go bad. No. Well, unless you count Richard Dreyfus leaving. leaving I think Earth. the Earth can do without a Richard Dreyfus. <laughs> yeah. Maybe they maybe, maybe not they Richard just... Dreyfus, but can do without Roy. Well yeah, for sure. <laughs> maybe uh maybe they just showed up to find out whether we could jam. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's a pretty complicated sequence they, they had there. Maybe that ship, maybe Gangly Alien is like alien version of Kanye. And he just like, he needed somebody else to collaborate with before he dropped his latest mix. Okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to play the host here and, and I'm going to stop, stop you right there. And I actually want to go back. I want to go back to talk about something that you pinpointed, which I thought was a really interesting insight about how well the film establishes, you know, certain domestic details in a way in such a way to make the transcendent elements of the uh the the stuff we see later in the film more powerful uh because i think that's something that spielberg does extraordinarily well is create these really lived in chaotic domestic spaces that to me is what that, that was just just that was compelling enough in the first part forget about even all of the alien stuff i just i just roy at home and his kid kid in the in the playpen slamming <laughs> slamming that doll plastic doll over and over again it just felt like he understood how the American home as as an organism functioned in a way that so few filmmakers get. Okay, you're the only one at the table with kids, yes. and if that's how your your household functions, <laughs> I'm a little worried because no, <laughs> I did not enjoy that 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 vision of chaos, particularly that child smashing what is very clearly his sister's doll. Mm-hmm. I mean, his sister looks like she's maybe a little old for a playpen. Uh-huh. It's possible that neither the playpen or the doll are are in use anymore. Okay, I was you know speaking personally playpen wise I can talk about the playpen I was I used to I used to play that thing until I was w- way too old to be like I'd, 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 I'd throw toys out of it climb out of the playpen get the toy go back into the playpen anyway is that I, is this about close encounters this is about this is about me it, well it's it, it's certainly about you and close uh, encounters your, is about all of us yeah. <laughs> your desire to no i mean you, but i'm just saying stuff. you can play pins you can kind of you can keep using <laughs> is what i'm saying okay well I, this is me i mean the whole playpen thing is me trying to excuse the fact that mm-hmm. neither roy nor ronnie does anything about the fact that this little boy is clearly smashing his sister's doll to pieces <laughs> i mean yeah. roy you can kind of excuse this like he's clearly a kind of like neglectful 
like 80s father. Like he seems to have the attitude that like the kids are mostly his wife's business and his business is apparently determining which uh, movie he's going to pay for everybody to go see. There's like a definite sense of before Ronnie enters that scene, there's kind of a sense of like, oh, this is dad. We come to dad when we want something paid for. And other than that, like he's not really going to take much responsibility for the kids. But then Ronnie enters and she just kind of glances at the middle kid smashing this doll and then goes to talk to her husband. And to me, that's just kind of the beginning of this this thing that goes throughout the movie where the household is just this center of, of chaos and unpleasant feelings. Mm. I thought their family dynamic was horrible. And it gets much more horrible at the point where Roy is breaking down and desperately asking his wife for help. And she's slapping him and shoving him away and talking about how it's all his fault that the home is, has fallen into chaos. And for me, there's that scene where the two of them kiss by the roadside, but that's really the only moment in the film that feels like there's any affection in this marriage. And at the point where he's begging her for help and she's shoving him away and, and blaming him for everything that's happened. I just, I didn't feel any sense of like affection or respect or caring there. I Mm. thought, I thought the relationship was really ugly Mm. and it almost felt like it was being set up that way specifically. So we won't feel too bad when he takes another option and and leaves the planet. I wonder which version, if if you watch the, I think the 1998, uh, version um because i I, i'm not super well versed in all the different versions of this movie i know the 1980 like collector's edition or whatever is one that added the mothership sequence at the end there's there's the theatrical this the director's cut and the special edition yeah and from what i understand like spielberg added kind of more and more uh domestic stuff within each release to i think kind of justify roy's actions um and because i i'm not recalling everything that you're talking about and i'm pretty sure i watched the 1977 original edition so i'm wondering if you may have watched the 1998 directors i think that's the director's yeah, cut. yeah i watched the director's cut yeah. i watched the version that's streaming on amazon and they don't really specify which yeah. version it is yeah because the version I watched, I, I don't recall the the slapping him that you are talking about. It. She doesn't slap him across the face. She smacks his hands like he reaches for her and she like physically knocks him away. Well, I do think that it speaks to what I read where Spielberg did kind of add more and more of these moments of domesticity, I think, like I said, to kind of justify Roy's departure. And that certainly makes sense based on what you just said well just out of curiosity i mean do you remember a scene where he's in the shower fully clothed with the bright light in the no, bathroom no that okay is, so that, that, that whole yeah sequence so that 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 is, that is definitely from uh from what i read that is definitely from the most recent director's cut oh wow so that is not the one i saw my which i wish i had the mothership yeah spielberg hated the mothership and, and <laughs> took it like and took it out of, of subsequent releases that, roger yeah so don't quote me on that. I wish Keith was here because this is, know, you know, he's all know. over this. Yeah. But it, directors, like, make a movie and be done with it. I know. But <laughs> Go make a second But movie. while we're talking about domiciles, you know, this doesn't quite fit into the discussion of suburbia. Um, but I thought Jillian and Barry's house is is very kind of interesting as well in that because they're they're in a more rural mm-hmm. area Muncie. yeah <laughs> Muncie is apparently a, like a giant abandoned field with lights and yeah, yeah that's but it's also where Tim Robbins from the is from in the Hudsucker proxy go Eagles oh but that sense of like you know clutter and you know your house kind of encroaching in on you that I definitely felt that in Jillian's home as mm-hmm. well but it's just her and her son like she's a single mom and they're so isolated out there and you the moment that got me is like when Barry goes outside after the ship and you just see the incredible starry sky and these like incredibly bright stars and it just really drives home that they're in the middle of nowhere and they're isolated in a way that Roy's family is not like they're there's a voyeuristic element to their place in the suburbs when Roy is losing his mind and he's doing it in front of the neighbors and they're all watching and it's mortifying to his wife and family and they leave and so it's it's interesting these two kind of similarly chaotic homes in two very different settings yeah 
that's a good point. I, um, you know, I mean, one thing I would say to defend, I guess, the marriage between Roy and Ronnie is that I think they're they're a couple that sort of in the beginning of the film is in a domestic routine. They have their roles, and I think if there's hostility between them, it, it's 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 that Ronnie is upset that he is that he is not doing his job, <laughs> and is not it, it has become this unstable figure who is who is creating unrest in their home. But I like that observation about, you know, I mean, their, their troubles, when they have them, be, do become a, a neighborhood spectacle. Um, you know, the nosy uh, neighbor, who, uh, you know, looking out the window all the, the time. Duck lover. That's right. And then, and, uh, and then, you know, when, when she skips town, I mean, everyone, everyone knows about it. Yeah. Uh, Although it's interesting to note, in both cases, like, there's no help to be had. In one case, there's a lot of witnesses to the trouble. But the fact that there are all all of those neighbors nearby just means there are people to like stare at them and judge them in the same way that uh, Barry that's it's such an incredible shot that you're you're, mm-hmm. kind of, you're evoking oh, where yeah. he's he's running off and you don't see the ship but that's what he's going after and as soon as he gets away from the lights of the house like the little sort of puddle of light in the corner of the screen that the house has created he disappears and he's gone mm-hmm. and there's no one to see that happen in the suburbs when Roy is freaking out everybody's standing around and watching nobody makes a move to intervene nobody calls the cops nobody helps ronnie and the kids either they're just all they're kind of dumbstruck in a very spielbergian way Mm -hmm. so either way they kind of have to rely on themselves one quick detail uh, going back to jillian's house i i also found myself just caring a lot more about jillian and barry this this time around than about roy and his family i'm a child of a single mother maybe that uh (laughs) that's where this is coming from but Mm -hmm. i love like the first time we meet jillian she's in bed and you know, you know, noise is happening, and she gets out of bed, and she's wearing her clothes. She's wearing like jean shorts mm-hmm. and, and a blouse or something, Such and it just detail. yeah, and it's just like she just collapsed. She just collapsed mm-hmm. in bed, you know, it, it, like her her life as a single mom in this huge house that is she obviously can't quite stay on top of is exhausting and that's just such a little perfect little domestic moment uh the other thing too about about that location is just that you know when you're it's so iconic seeming and you're in your out on a farm and it's the you know this the, it's open skies you know there's just an aesthetic beauty to that location um it, it seems like the right place to get abducted from is right what I'm exactly is it possible though that the reason that you feel so much more attached to jillian and barry is because they show authentic feeling for each other i mean she really seems to love her son. He really seems to love her. There's an attachment there. And when they're separated, it's a heartbreaking thing. Whereas when Roy leaves his family and goes off to Devil Tower, Devil's Tower, it's kind of a relief. Yeah, it's well, Jillian has clearly been addled in a similar way to Roy. Like they mm-hmm. speak about having a similar experience. But the thing that drives her to Devil's Tower is at least partially and I guess I guess majority going after her son trying to get her son back it's less this sort of psychotic obsession that Roy displays and it's based in maternal instinct it's based in something we can understand and relate to emotionally whereas you know the aliens scrambled my brains and now I have to go to them is you know a lot harder to process I think emotionally but Roy tr- treats her much more sort of tenderly and humanely mm-hmm. than than he does. I think I think it becomes a thing where it's just a shared experience. Mm-hmm. And, and if mm-hmm. they and if and if you haven't shared that experience, it, you're alienated from it. So Roy, uh, once he does um, come into contact with, with 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 her and her her situation, and they both ha- share a common goal, uh, he doesn't seem as crazy anymore. Yeah, <laughs> and doesn't act as crazy anymore. And uh, and the mission makes more sense. Uh, I don't know. I guess the, you know there seem like they're uh, less destructive ways to figure out where uh, where <laughs> that they need to go to Devil's Tower. Uh, but, uh, camping trip, surprise camping trip, guys. <laughs> well, I mean, when he grabs his whole family out of bed at four in the morning and packs them all into the truck, yeah. like that's sort of a surprise camping. Trip. Yeah, <laughs> I've read that. That's that's what inspired this movie. Is that Spielberg's parents apparently shoved them all in the car on no notice in the middle of the night and t- 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 took them. <laughs> tearing off through the the night and it turned out they were going to go watch a like a fantastic meteor shower mm-hmm. but that uh, that image just kind of impressed itself on him and he kind of reflects it here you talk about sympathizing more with Jillian and Barry than with Roy and his family 
One thing that uh, that I found on this viewing that didn't strike me at all as a kid was I found myself very sympathetic with Roy and Ronnie's children. Mm. You see a lot of them distressed and yeah. frightened and crying and angry, lashing out. And watching it, I mean, I got the same reaction to when the aliens are shaking Jillian and Barry's house and Jillian is terrified and Barry seems kind of delighted. First of all, I kept thinking, how did they keep that kid so happy <laughs> when the actress playing Jillian and Melinda Dillon seems f- completely freaked out yeah. and is like screaming and, and hanging on to him? Like you would think that that would wig out a two-year-old who's trying to be like told to to play make-believe. But... I, I kept thinking, watching this must have been so traumatic for children. And then I look back to my own childhood and like that scene, when I first saw that scene at the dinner table where his children are weeping and his wife is screaming at him because he's playing with the mashed potatoes. <laughs> when I watched that as a kid, I was just like, oh, the funny man's playing with mashed potatoes and yeah. that's silly. Like none of the rest of it made an impact on me. Yeah. We talked just a little bit about, you know, the domestic scenes in the film, but I also wanted to ask you all about other aspects of the film that mark it as a Steven Spielberg film. I mean, what, <laughs> what, what about uh, Close Encounters is Spielbergian? Well, that, people looking up at the sky in <laughs> awe. Yeah. They, they, their mouths know. hanging open. Yeah, yeah, this is kind of the quintessential movie for that, yeah. for sure. Yeah, a lot of people have done essays about Spielberg face. Um, our old pal Kevin B. Lee did a video of Spielberg face that's just a, a bunch of like that Spielbergian look up into with hand, mouth hanging open, staring at something in wonder. I highly recommend that. You can find it online. Well, the sequence with the kid, with the boy uh, looking around, I mean, that's one of the most famous bits of child acting that of all time. I mean, everyone talks about that scene, about how Spielberg was able to elicit this, these responses from this kid who was, you know, not an actor, he's just a kid. Related to that, too, related to Spielberg's thing about going to those faces first, is that he, do, he, he also finds these, these offhand ways of suggesting a presence, the presence of something without going there directly you know he'll go to like a you know a series of mailboxes that are shaking and opening up you know and of course jurassic park has the bit with the with the mm-hmm. uh, glass of water yeah. trembling uh, uh, it's just a clever you know, purely visual way of establishing something and uh, he just he does it like nobody else yeah. yeah there's that something is coming feeling uh, there's also there's the john williams score obviously uh, musically speaking it's iconic but William has a a feel to him that's very, very grandiose and sweeping and epic. And he and Spielberg have worked together on more than 30 films. I was just, I was looking through their shared filmography and... (laughs) I was I was actually surprised it was quite so many, but uh, certainly that like that epic bombast that sense part of that sense of wonder comes from John Williams' score and the the way that Spielberg works it to drive the emotions home. Spielberg also is good at creating tension in kind of unexpected ways, like like mild tension. And the place, uh, the scene that I really felt that was uh, when Roy is building the Devil's Tower in his living room and there's the TV in the foreground mm-hmm. that we can see this news report about. <laughs> and, and we see Devil's Tower and Roy doesn't see it. And it's like, is he going to see it? Is he going to see it? And, it? and it goes on just long enough that you're like, Starting to get a little nervous. Yeah. Like, is he not going to see it? And then he, he does see it, obviously. But it's it's a, just a little bit of like visual wit that also creates a sense of tension and excitement, which I love. Yeah, I think that's one of my favorite sequences in the movie, just for that reason. Because you're like, come on, you wait. They cut away, you know the news broadcast. They'll cut away to De- Devil's Tower, and they'll cut yeah. back to the newscaster. He misses it. It's like, please. Yeah. You and know? it's it's not quite. F- funny like i wouldn't quite call it a joke but like spielberg is really good at it like like i guess you just call it wit you know mm-hmm. like not necessarily laugh out loud moments but they're like huh, yeah i see what you're doing there stevie <laughs> yeah, there's also totally. just there's the apple-cheeked optimism of the whole thing mm-hmm. you know that feeling which none of us felt this time no, no, we all thought it was just horrible <laughs> it was like we all thought it was like kind of like a, a you know a ken loach film or something <laughs> so. well the feeling that you get i mean I, one of the things he does here is create this gigantic tension and contrast between 
the domestic life that Roy has at home and the wonder of the rest of the cosmos. I think that's one of the reasons that the ending of the film feels so awe-striking is because you spend so much time in like the muddy little corners of Ray's addled brain as his kind of mental illness gets worse and worse. And then when you open it up and you start seeing these, you know, another uh, classic Spielbergian touch is those bright colored lights like shining through like emitting beams of light like that whole visual is just is a very Spielbergian thing and suddenly it becomes just this very clean image that that draws you out of all of the mundanity and all of the domesticity the film itself as a whole it like the touches the the domestic stuff may not be may not have that kind of norman rockwell feel to them and that takes me kind of back to Mm et and the miserable like single mom trying to handle uh like a household full of like growing and increasingly chaotic kids but then that film et you know becomes a movie about childhood joy and wonder and like the the excitement of being a child and the emotional connection with friends and all of this stuff that's just a very spielbergian thing itself is that sense of of community and happiness and positivity where as you say this could have been a movie about like the ellen showing up to probe everybody (laughs) well and i mean spielberg did get there with war of the worlds you know like i I mean it's also worth pointing out that this is spielberg at a very specific point in his career Mm -hmm. and he has he is on record as saying that i would never have made close encounters the way i made it in 77 because i have a family that i would never leave that was just the privilege of youth he said that in a 1997 making of documentary Mm. um and i find that very interesting because you know we can talk about things being Spielbergian, but you know this is also a movie that he made in the very very early part of his career, and it's a lot of these things we're just seeing the 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 beta versions of what will come to be known as Spielbergian. Yeah. Although I mean, War of the Worlds is dark and like there's a lot of people die in very horrible ways but in the end it does come down to family and tom cruise's character's family survives under thoroughly ridiculous well, yeah it's the exact inverse of this because the aliens are bad and family is reaffirmed at the end and in close encounters aliens are good and he says screw my family i'm leaving you know <laughs> but either way it's meant well, to mother feel like and, an mother and son choice. are reunited yeah. in this right though. Uh, <laughs> well and also there's, this et too we should acknowledge et as being uh i think much more in line with close encounters as mm-hmm. being a much friendlier uh affair all around really yeah um though Talk, again we though, talked about pairing though that's another one where it, yeah. you're where where the domestic scene is is chaotic and, and a little alienating for for young henry but uh that's for another podcast yes. maybe <laughs> maybe down the line you know i think the other thing i really appreciate about the film is that is how much uh the confidence that spielberg has to pull to carry out the sequence at the end because the stakes are pretty high but you know and maybe i guess there is a little bit of a threat that's been established because we don't necessarily know what they want from, from us maybe maybe things could go awry but really it is a, it is a it is a sequence of sustained wonderment that we we have to witness and that's a very hard thing to stage i think um it, it, you really have to to blow people away purely on a filmmaking level in order to make that work i mean otherwise if you don't have it on, a, on an effects level or on a on a filmmaking level it's just not going to work at all right yeah. and the effects are amazing to this day like mm-hmm. it, it's the you know, it's the Jaws principle, but not in that, like, for so long during that scene, even though I know we're going to see the aliens, I feel like we're not going to see the aliens, mm-hmm. you know, like, it just feels like there is something just out of reach that's that's happening. And then when you do see it, like, it, it's very impressive, but it's still, like, straightforward. You know, it's not stylized mm-hmm. uh, necessarily and it, it makes it I think easier to appreciate the beauty that is there. I think we see too much of the aliens yeah. quite frankly. I, I think we should have seen maybe a third of what we see. Do you mean a third fewer actual aliens or a third less time spent with the aliens? Well both of those things. Because <laughs> there's a lot of them. And maybe one third of uh, that spider alien. Just I, like... We can just get rid of him all together. <laughs> Her, I don't know. I don't want to assume. So, none just, of, so just the, I guess we're all grateful that we 
did not go on the ship uh, in our edition, in our oh, yeah. special. No, edition. no, I, I totally, I would be on board that ship. I would, really? I would. Oh yeah, I would. Uh, yeah, sorry, my husband Bob, who is doubtless listening oh, to this, oh. and our three non-existent children. But uh, bye, I'm on that ship. Your, your cat just ran out of the room. It's clearly upset. <laughs> I'm not taking the cat. <laughs> no, I actually have in my notes that this is the anti-Jaws because yes, we we are teased with the idea of the aliens, and there's a bunch of oh, what the hell are the aliens doing at at Barry's house apparently rattling around in the heating vents and uh shaking the doors I don't know but the spaceships themselves we see like early and often and like close up and front on like that moment when the sh- when the ships come tearing around the corner uh <laughs> ice cream cone why does he think they look like ice cream cones they don't look like ice cream cones <laughs> one of them is apparently triangular shaped because uh I think Jillian says the same thing somebody says the same thing okay. on that road that oh it was shaped like an ice cream cone whatever in my world ice cream cones don't light up with 50 50 leds and 20 colors but you know who knows who knows what happens in spielberg land but we see so much of the ships so often that like a little of the wonder dies down but it also just becomes kind of this ongoing tease like we we see them so quickly and so much of them it's like what's what's going to be bigger and better what's going to come next and i think that drives a certain amount of excitement the fact that it isn't perpetually something just off screen or a little glow in the clouds and then the ship shows up it's like he spends so much time with those ships that he has to impress you with the mothership like something on that scale to take it up a notch yeah no, that's a good point so i had a question uh for you all because this figures in a little bit also with midnight special when we get to it but uh is the government justified in keeping the public from knowing about these ufos Yeah, you know, we see government agents as bad guys in et but uh, i don't know if they're so bad yeah here, I, f- I feel like i'm supposed to say like no but yeah i mean i think they are kind of justified i mean this is clearly like a huge expensive operation that is happening at devil's tower that could have disastrous consequences and they just want to like keep people from poking around in there like i mean (laughs) yeah you know but this was apparently close encounters was originally conceived as a movie about quote ufos and watergate and and it's really interesting how far away it drifts from that mission statement and i feel like there's kind of i don't think it drifts that far though actually i was about to i didn't know that until you said it but like i i was one of the points i was going to make was just about how this felt like it had the residue of those paranoid yeah. 70s thrillers that that, that were happening Yeah, and maybe and maybe it's just because we're not steeped in that paranoia or we're steeped in a very different kind of paranoia. It's <laughs> it's like not now now we're, now we're in an era of like over transparency and uh it, that's stressful in its own way. Mm-hmm. So maybe like in that context like it's certainly easier to get a reading of this government as a shadowy secretive one mm-hmm. well and also it's a it's a it's a true global well, collaboration exactly and, and it, it's like it's like the it's gar- an american french collaboration for some reason the rest of the world is in india um i don't know i get mm-hmm. the impression that they right. uh, uh they go- nobody can see me pointing to the sky but <laughs> no. they go they all oh, i get the impression oh, oh, that they go get the data from india but sure. there's nobody at the site who appears to be a representative nato can we say nato <laughs> But but I do think, like, the sense of, like, exploratory curiosity and trust that these agencies are displaying and putting together this huge whatever they're, they're doing at Devil's Tower and, you know, getting a bunch of people to send off into space. Like, I mean, that's kind of, it's NASA, you know, and it's that belief in something bigger and pooling your resources to explore it. And there is something admirable about that, I think. Oh, yeah. And a big part of that does come from having Truffaut there Mm -hmm. as apparently chief guy in charge. Mm -hmm. We never really find out why some random French guy who, like, his scientific credentials are never given. Um, Seems smart. His accent is his credentials. (laughs) He seems smart. He's French Truffaut. I I hope that's not the only qualification (laughs) for being in charge of the first contact. He's the the French New Wave. Uh, Truffaut's scientist is actually apparently based on a real scientist named Jacques Vallée. Does that name ring a bell for anyone? I guess he he met with Spielberg a few times uh, when he was working on the film, and I guess he's. Well, let's let's, let's look up what Jacques Vallée is. Um, in mainstream science, Vallée is notable for co-developing the first computerized mapping of Mars for NASA, and his work at SRI International on the Network Information Center for the ARPANET is a precursor to the modern internet. Oh. So 
Yeah, that's uh, I mean, he's pretty he's, smart. Yeah, seems like Maybe a good guy. Than yeah, Truffaut. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I mean, point is, come on, he's one of the he, leading figures. He in seems like wave. Yeah. Hey, he's qualified. Your question, you're you're the one questioning. I'm not his questioning his qualifications. I'm saying that they, I don't think that they come up in the film, and his presence is this strange anomaly. I mean, there's a lot in the first ten minutes of the film. There's a lot of people yelling at each other in unsubtitled Spanish or French or Hindi. And you're, the audience is just sort of left to go. Okay, eventually that's what Bob Balaban's there for. Yeah, and consider we're just enter, we're entering it, you know, in the middle. And I'm not going to say what's the what are the in Latin, media res. In media res, uh-huh. we're entering in media res. A lot of people um, in screaming so we, each other. So we don't. We, we, we neither we 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 don't know or uh, no neither. I think maybe should, we should care about how people got to their station. We will get into that in part two when we talk about the mysteries of this film and uh, the mysteries of Midnight Special. But to answer your question, no, I don't think the government here is evil. And mostly that's because at no point, there does not seem to be a general in charge. There does not seem to be <laughs> general in charge. <laughs> I don't know. That was pushing it. I know. Even for uh, it was meta. another reference. It was meta. So uh, there's nobody, like in, in uh, an Independence Day style film, you would have general someone in charge uh giving orders and like saying we've got to keep this from the media we've got to figure out how to weaponize this because we are evil Mm -hmm. and there's no sense of that like it really does feel like okay well we need to keep civilians away because we don't want anybody messing up this conversation with things that are possibly so powerful they could lay waste to the planet yeah no, but they but they are you know act, actively keeping our our heroes from trying well, to and they're lying. They're they're saying yeah. like is what some gas or or, or something you know. Yeah. So they lie, but I don't think saying like hey you know we got some top secret project involving aliens and music notes over here is gonna you <laughs> know. Please don't come. Everyone, yeah. please don't come. You're not invited. <laughs> yeah, don't come. Even those of you that were expressly invited are not invited. Um. <laughs> uh, well, well, quickly before we we wrap up, I just wanted to go through and see what your favorite moment of the film was, Tasha. Oh, it's a very small thing, but when the uh, when they're playing the music tones to the three ships, which look strangely like the the clapping monkey toy at the beginning <laughs> of the film, like the they have these this band of lights across the bottom that look exactly like a, a toothy grin, and then they have two lights that look like bulbous eyes, and then a light that looks like a big nose. <laughs> but the three of them are like flying in midair, and the humanity is desperately playing these tones at them, trying to get them to react. And they play the music back. That was where I teared up because everybody's talking now. And it's it's such a fulfillment of something we were led to expect. And then they take off. And two of them, like, peel neatly off to the side. And the middle one, like, does a little loop-de-loop. And I could just see, like, the alien pilot of that ship going, Wee! <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's a weirdly humanizing touch for aliens. What about you, Genevieve? Uh, mine's a little different, and I think Tasha threw a little shade at it earlier, so I'm a little hesitant to bring it up, but I really like Barry's abduction, where the ha- this cluttered farmhouse feels like it's kind of coming alive, and yeah. it's an extension of the, the ship outside. Tasha, not, you were, were you dissing that earlier? I was dissing that a little bit. Sheesh. Yeah, yeah. Well, classic, classic I, I'm, I'm dissing your dissing of that sequence, because I find it absolutely thrilling, this idea that, because there's, there's no place to escape to. Like, the house is coming alive and seems like it's attacking but you can't run outside because the thing that's attacking is out there and it's it's i think it's the real payoff of that house of that iconic house that you talk about mm-hmm. and all the stuff in it and this old house because old old farmhouses like that do feel like they have a personality and like even though we know it is these beings outside that are causing this disruption it does have a sense that the the place is coming alive in a way. I, 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 I held my breath during no, that I moment. Yeah. Uh, two, uh, we are, uh, two, two to one. We, 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 okay. won, we win that nope, dispute. Nope, nope. I'm going to outvote both of you by saying <laughs> Poltergeist did it better. That was later. True. <laughs> Scott, you're going to give us your favorite moment? Uh, I, I've, got a, I've got a couple. One one very small moment. I, I liked uh, Richard Dreyfus teaching uh, fractions to his kid <laughs> via, via model train. It's like, oh, <laughs> so people are going to die. You're going to figure it out. And then uh, I... Uh, and thousands then, of lives Thousands of lives stake. are at stake. Um, and then I also liked the, um, you know, the classic scene where he where he's on the road and he encounters uh, mm. the, the alien ship and that's another great 
piece of visual wit when when at mm-hmm. first there's a car that comes up behind him and the, you just see that the headlights and then he, wa- he waves that car <laughs> past and then here comes then the alien ship <laughs> comes by and waves it, wave past. it past <laughs> and uh and it, it it moves in a different way than a car would yeah um and it's just uh, that's just a, such a wonderful classic spielbergian moment and, and also another example of like almost missing inf- like information that we the audience have that the character almost misses yeah. <laughs> which yeah. is such a hitchcockian thing i mean the tv set in the foreground with information that he needs in the background and isn't getting like that is classic hitchcock mm. but the business with the the ship just like lifting off behind him <laughs> and he doesn't notice hitchcock wouldn't have done that <laughs> uh that's good, good stuff but um now it is time for feedback Feedback uh, time. Feedback time. We need a song for it because it would make it would make the someone send us a feedback time song. We'll use it. Really? <laughs> um, feedback time for us. <laughs> we should have Elliot. Auto tune us. Elliot Kalen from the Flophouse record a special feedback song because he does his mailbag song, <laughs> uh, his letter song. Anyway, um, so it's feedback time. Uh, our last show on Psycho and Ten Cloverfield Lane I drew a lot of responses from listeners who shared our enthusiasm for both films. Uh, Genevieve, want to get us started? Sure. This one is excerpted from a longer email from listener Ben Sunday. He writes, Watching Psycho, I was struck by how Marion's story in the beginning not only feels like it has a different protagonist from the rest of the film, but also a different genre. The crime plot that she finds herself involved in, which hinges on greed and a pivotal moment of weakness, echoes many stories from the film noir tradition that had just ended with Touch of Evil. In this first act, we therefore see a narrative structure the audiences in 1960 would have been very familiar with, and that they may have expected to play out exactly as it had before. Then a wrong turn leads Marion from the main highway to the Bates Motel, a mistake that also takes her away from the clear path of a film noir to the unexpected and disturbing world of a slasher. All the rules established within the former genre, that greed dictates all actions and that the main characters will survive until the climax, suddenly no longer apply to this new place and its proprietor, Norman Bates. For me, what makes Psycho scary is the sense of transportation from familiar territory to a strange place where the rules we take for granted no longer apply, though we naively assume they still hold true. And, blind to the genre we truly exist within, we see the gentle face of a hotel owner and greet it as something familiar and kind, though what it hides is unrecognizable and evil. Yeah, I mean, I think that that in a nutshell explains why how effective yeah. that gear shift is in yeah. in psycho is being being transported um you know not only in terms of story but in terms of genre mm-hmm. from from uh from from a, a crime film or a, or, or a sort of a moral drama uh to to a horror film yeah, yeah hitchcock was very fond of of breaking the rules I, he was very fond of doing anything that surprised or shocked people. And we talked a lot about the marketing for the film and how gimmick-driven it was. But part of that was about taking the the expressed, at the time, implied rules of what it was like to go to a movie in that era and breaking all of them for shock value. You know, telling people they weren't allowed to walk in in the middle, telling people that they, they had to experience it in this one specific mm-hmm. way. It really feels like part of what makes Psycho so shocking is that he acknowledges the rules and plays by them until suddenly he's done with them <laughs> and there's no warning that that's coming. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, so, so given that we're uh, talking about Close Encounters and Cosmic Coincidences today, we had to share this email from listener Richard, who found some harmony between Psycho, 10 Cloverfield Lane, in this very podcast. Tasha, could you read this one? <laughs> sure. Richard writes, This isn't an analysis of Psycho and 10 Cloverfield Lane. It's just something funny that I wanted to share with you folks. First, my birthday is April 4th. So is Anthony Perkins's. So each year I watch Psycho so we can share our birthdays together. Second, my local movie theater gives patrons a free ticket on our birthdays. And this year, I decided I was going to see 10 Cloverfield Lane with that ticket. So I was pretty tickled when I was adding podcast episodes to my iPod to listen to on the walk to and from the theater and discovered that not only would I see those movies today, but I would also be listening to your reviews of them. Just an interesting coincidence that I wanted to share with y'all. Thanks for your contribution to my birthday. You're doing good work. Love the show. It wasn't a coincidence. We knew it was your birthday. <laughs> How's that for a gear show? Wait till, we, yeah, wait till you see what we get you next year. <laughs> we, we really tailor this 
podcast specifically to one listener. <laughs> Wait till and you see who we're you, tailoring Richard. today's the podcast to. Uh, <laughs> it's going to be such a gear shift, you're never going to see it coming. Okay, so so finally, I, I, I wanted to address an email from a listener who did not like it when I said the words, people should not be allowed to watch movies. <laughs> oh, Scott. I know. Well, I, okay, let me explain. Uh, the context for that line was Keith's anecdote about seeing Psycho with a friend who'd never been exposed to it in any way, and the chatty folks behind them giving away the relationship between Norman and his mother before Hitchcock revealed it. I intended the line, people should not be allowed to watch movies as a joke, but in case that was not clear, I should add that the next picture show exists because of a shared passion for movies between ourselves and our listeners. We are people who watch movies, and of course we encourage other people to watch them too, and occasionally we make sarcastic jokes about people not that should not be not being allowed to watch movies. Uh, but uh, but you know our thing is like wait until wait to talk until the movie is over, please. I think we can all agree on that, right? Maybe maybe not shout spoilers during the no, film. No. I, I think I think your point was that if you are a person who regularly shares spoilers aloud during a film with other people around, you should not be allowed to watch movies. <laughs> yeah, that's, so that's a solid it, point. Yes, I'm not being snobby. No. I, I, so those specific you, you, maybe people was too broad of a term. Yeah, but people like this one very specific person. Yeah, no, they definitely should not. They should be thinking about this. At least not allowed to watch them in public. No. Here, here's the thing. I my first thought about that email was, oh come on, it was a joke. But at the same time. I have been in the room multiple times with other critics, critics that we have interesting conversations with and whose opinions we often respect, saying very dismissive things about being forced to watch movies with the hoi polloi Mm -hmm. during public screenings where the public is invited as though that's some kind of, you know, horrible burden. And whenever I hear somebody say that, I immediately think, ugh, you tiresome elitist snob and it is entirely possible that they mean it as a joke and that they're just expressing frustration with someone who won't put their phone away or who like loudly talks or who is clearly vocally bored during the film so as as much as we kind of want to say okay lighten up it was a joke i've been on the wrong end of that joke and you know if you if you feel strongly that i don't know people should be allowed to watch movies (laughs) and that seeing movies with other people should not be a burden i guess it is easy to take that to take that statement however lightly we intended it yeah it's potentially offensive abide abide by the social contract people that is my and, that is my and enjoy idea. movies we enjoy. do yeah we do too yeah. uh, well, there's no other reason they're we're, good things we're here we're glad um, they invented them so as always we appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations to reach us you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net we may feature your response on a future episode or post it on our website And that's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In the second half, we'll bring in Midnight Special and discuss how it twists a Close Encounters scenario to its own ends. Look for that later this week, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. Follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow and follow us on Twitter at nextpicturepod so you'll always know when a new episode drops. And if those social media outlets aren't enough for you, here's something new and exciting... On Wednesday, April 13th, Reddit's True Films subreddit will be hosting an AMA with me, Keith Phipps, Tasha Robinson, and Genevieve Kosky. Uh, you can show up on Reddit to ask us anything about the podcast, about film, about fighting giant ducks or tiny horses, <laughs> or anything else you want us to discuss. You can find the full details and a link to the AMA on our Twitter or Facebook account. And we really hope you'll tune in on April 13th and ask us anything. Until then... Look to the skies. We are not alone.